following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The following address was delivered by Robert J. Breckinridge as a speech made during the October 1843 meeting of the Synod of Philadelphia of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. This speech was subsequently published under the title, Presbyterian Government, Not a Hierarchy, but a Commonwealth. My regret, moderator, that the gentleman who has just taken his seat should be found contending against the rights of that class of officers of which he is an ornament, is mixed with admiration of his frank and kind demeanor, contrasting so strongly with the course which leading ministers of the gospel in this body have considered it their duty to pursue. If the advocates of that preposterous dogma, so current amongst us, that by ordination men transmit the essence of the offices they hold, could only prove that in the same manner they may transmit the spirit which actuates them, I, for one, sir, would infinitely prefer to be ordained with the imposition of hands of a body of ruling elders, like my friend from Delaware, to the most unimpeachable descent through popery, prelacy, or new schoolism, which can be boasted by any of those who find themselves in positions which should entitle them, as they appear to suppose, to control these questions in this synod. As to the proposition which the member has read and which he proposes to offer at a future stage of the business, I am glad to see that it distinctly repudiates the miserable sophistry put into the mouth of the last assembly and proclaims the duty of the churches to send up ruling elders and that of the ruling elders to attend the presbyteries. I must say, however, that the notion of a quorum of a church court being established by those gracious promises of our Savior that he would be present where two or three are gathered in his name and that if two would agree what they ask shall be done for them seems to me in the last degree fanciful. Or if there be any weight in the argument of the minute, then it is too manifest to need proof that on this ground two officers, whether they be preachers or ruling elders, being wholly immaterial, may constitute every church court authorized by Scripture, and therefore the assembly and the constitution of the church are as far wrong as the persons against whom the member has leveled his paper. But in truth, these divine promises settle the quorum of a prayer meeting, or at most of a church, and have no relation to the present subject." It is unfortunate that the question before us appears to be so minute. In point of fact, the ultimate principle involved is one of the most important and comprehensive that could be submitted to the people of God. In deciding it, we virtually decide whether our church constitution establishes a government under which the final power and the actual authority are in the hands of the preachers as preachers, or of the body of Christian people to be exercised through officers regularly connected with them. And as we confess that our Constitution derives its binding force from its accordance with the Word of God, the question at last is between a divine hierarchy and a divine commonwealth. There are many great, general, and precious truths upon which I will not venture to doubt that we are all agreed, and which yet seem to be decisive of the present subject. I cannot therefore omit to state the more obvious of them. And yet I ought not to consider it necessary to prove them, since they are explicitly held forth in our ecclesiastical standards. Such are the propositions that God has established a kingdom in this world wholly distinct from all secular kingdoms, and entirely independent of all civil magistracies, that the visible church of Jesus Christ is that kingdom, and he, the Lord Jesus, its only head and king, its sole lawgiver, its sole priest, and by his word and spirit, its only infallible teacher." and that the only safe, certain, and entire rule of faith and practice is contained in sacred scripture, that to this kingdom thus set up, held forth, and guided, the Lord Jesus has given an outward government and permanent officers, our standards clearly teach. But the immediate application, as well as the great importance of these two principles, require a more particular notice of them. That church government is in the hands of assemblies, congregational, classical, and synodical, and not of church officers individually considered, that the church is governed by judicatories, not by officers acting personally, is the explicit doctrine of our Constitution. This principle is fundamental and vital to our entire system and constitutes one of the most striking characteristics by which Presbyterianism is separated from prelacy on the one hand and independency on the other. For our government is not in the hands of individual officers, and therefore is not prelacy. Neither is it in the hands of the whole brotherhood of each separate congregation as an independent body, and therefore it is not independency, 
but it is in the hands of assemblies, of assemblies too, which are classical and synodical, as well as congregational, and which, even when congregational, are delegated and not popular. It is a Christian commonwealth. It is not a hierarchy. It is not an aggregation of many petty democracies, and such is the constant doctrine of the soundest Presbyterian churches in every age and of the greatest expounders of our system everywhere. It is lawful and agreeable to the word of God that the church be governed by several sorts of assemblies, which are congregational, classical, and synodical, is the language of the Westminster Assembly, adopted by the Venerable Kirk of Scotland nearly 200 years ago, language conveying a sentiment held from the first dawn of the Reformation. Four years before the Scottish Kirk approved the form of Presbyterian church government agreed on at Westminster, which it did in 1645, indeed two years before the Westminster Assembly convened, the General Assembly of 1641, in a formal paper addressed to the Parliament of England, with universal consent, as they declare, pleading that the prelatical hierarchy might be put out of the way, adopted the following remarkable language. For although the Reformed Kirks do hold without doubting their Kirk officers and Kirk government by assemblies higher and lower in their strong and beautiful subordination to be jure divino by divine law and perpetual, Yet prelacy, as it differeth from the office of a pastor, is almost universally acknowledged by the prelates themselves and their adherents to be but an human ordinance. And still earlier, the leading mind in the Church of God during the illustrious era of the Second Reformation in Scotland, the Solemn League and Covenant, and the Westminster Assembly, the most brilliant epic of modern history, had set this whole subject in precisely the light in which I am now endeavoring to present it as a matter absolutely inherent in the very nature of Presbyterian polity, and distinguishing it precisely from a government by prelates. In a paper by Alexander Henderson in 1640, and submitted by the Scottish commissioners in London, of whom he was one, to the lords of the treaty, who were endeavoring to draw closer the bonds of union between Scotland and England, quote, unity in religion, uniformity of church government as a special means to conserve peace, end quote, being the general subject of the paper, and the utter hopelessness of unity, uniformity, or peace while prelacy remained the established, exclusive, and tolerant state religion of England being one of the special points argued in it, that wonderful man uses the following explicit language. They, that is the prelates, have left nothing undone which might tend to the overthrow of our church, not only of late by the occasion of these troubles whereof they have been the authors, but of old, from that opposition which is between Episcopal government and the government of the Reformed churches by assemblies. And again, the Reformed churches do hold without doubting their church officers, pastors, doctors, elders, and deacons, and their church government by assemblies to be jure divino and perpetual, as is manifest in all their writings. It cannot be questioned, sir, that all those churches strictly called Reformed did once hold with unanimous consent, and that their standards of faith, order, and discipline do still everywhere teach that the government of the Church of God is jure divino a free commonwealth, a government by assemblies. And it would be the idlest affectation for me to labor in a body like this to prove that, this being granted, everything which cannot, both in principle and in practice, be made to accord with this grand truth is contrary to the revealed will of God and to the general sentiment of the Reformed churches and necessarily tends either to the disorganization of the church or to tyranny in it. The manner of constituting these assemblies and the officers who compose them are stated in the clearest manner in our standards. The ordinary and perpetual officers in the church are bishops or pastors, the representatives of the people usually styled ruling elders, and deacons. The church session consists of a pastor and ruling elders, a synod of bishops and elders, and the general assembly of an equal delegation of bishops and elders. These are the ordinary assemblies of the church. These are the officers who compose them. These are the assemblies and these the officers composing them into whose hands God has committed the government of his visible church, according to our covenanted faith. And with us agree the Reformed churches in general. The second book of discipline of the Scottish Kirk, drawn up by Andrew Melville, a man heroic as Knox and learned as Calvin, a system formerly adopted by the Scottish assemblies of 1578 and 1581, deliberately sworn to in the National Covenant, and revived and ratified afresh in the memorable Assembly of 1638, and not only confirmed by many acts of other assemblies, but made the basis of laws which settled the church government of Scotland in 1592, 1640, and 1690, 
This clearest and noblest monument of church order not only fully bears out the statements of our own Constitution, but declares concerning ruling elders in their relationship to the church courts, which are the special subjects of this discussion, that, quote, their principal office is to hold assemblies with the pastors and doctors who are also of their number for establishing of good order and execution of discipline, end quote. In the Scottish Assembly of 1647, in one of the most emphatic public documents ever put forth by a church court, bearing a solemn and, as the paper asserts on its face, a unanimous testimony against the dangerous tenets of Erastianism and independency, delivers itself in these words, quote, that ecclesiastical government is committed and entrusted by Christ to the assemblies of the Kirk, made up of the ministers of the word and ruling elders, end quote. And this, along with seven other heads of doctrine, quote, the general assembly doth firmly believe, own, maintain, and commend unto others as solid, true, orthodox, grounded upon the word of God, consonant to the judgment both of the ancient and the best reformed Kirks. And again, say Henderson and the Scottish commissioners to London in the paper before cited, quote, much is spoken and written for the limitations of bishops. But what good can their limitation do to the church if ordination and ecclesiastical jurisdiction shall depend upon them and shall not be absolutely into the hands of the assemblies of the church? End quote. Now, sir, here is testimony just as conclusive as that on the former point that ruling elders are by divine right and by inherent necessity a component part of every assembly in a settled church state, that this is the general doctrine of the Reformed churches as well as of our own constitution. That the right and necessity of this presence of ruling elders in church assemblies distinguishes Presbyterianism from Erastianism and independency, as well as from prelacy, as completely as the existence of assemblies themselves does. And that the usurpation by bishops of the two grand powers residing in these assemblies, called by Henderson the powers of ordination and ecclesiastical jurisdiction, must at last place the church, as such a usurpation always heretofore has placed her, helpless and prostrate at the feet of a hierarchy. Just as inevitably as a usurpation of the same powers by the state subjects her to the civil power, or the usurpation of them by the brotherhood in each congregation disorganizes entirely her whole constitution. Sir, these truths are as obvious as their operation is irresistible, and it is incomprehensible to me how any man who is qualified to sit in any assembly of our church can have a doubt in regard to them. They are truths which are infinitely fruitful as well as transparently clear and their careful consideration would settle many questions now disputed amongst us, and correct practices neither few nor harmless, which may one day become too strong for reason. I will not, however, follow them at present beyond the scope of the question before us. The exact accordance of these two fundamental truths with Holy Scripture will not, I presume, be openly questioned here. Not only is the general scope of God's word constantly relied on, but the particular passages are always cited in our own and in all the standards of the Reformed Churches, by which it is judged that every proposition asserted is divinely sustained. And then it is confessed in the most unqualified terms that where God's word does not bear us out, either by its express language or by its necessary intent, there we have no authority to define anything or to enforce anything, except it may be in some circumstances common to the church and to human actions and societies. And even with regard to these, the general rules of the word are always to be observed. It must also be well known that the questions of church government and these questions touching assemblies and ruling elders in particular have been more largely and elaborately discussed than most others, and that the purest reformed churches, and especially those standards from which ours have been chiefly taken, are clear and positive in asserting the jus divinum, divine law, of Presbyterian government. A just divinum of the same character as that asserted for our system of doctrine, requiring in both cases a simple and faithful adherence on our part, and requiring in neither harshness or intolerance towards those who differ from us, asserting in both cases the duty of God's people, but denying in neither that his people may be gathered into true churches, though neither their doctrine nor their order may seem to us scriptural in all respects. Such, I venture to believe, is the view of the Presbyterian Church in the United States, and as regards the present aspect of this argument, there are none here, I suppose, who will openly question that if our standards teach that jurisdiction is in the hands of the presbytery, they do so on the authority of God's word. If they teach that none but presbyters may be component parts of presbytery, and that ruling elders are presbyters and therefore are component parts of presbytery, they teach this also on the same authority. 
that these standards and those of the Reformed churches in general do thus teach, I think I have clearly shown. And when it shall be questioned that this teaching is in accordance with divine truth, I will endeavor to make good this ground of our common faith. It would appear then that the case is clearly against the decision of the last General Assembly that in our church a presbytery can be regularly constituted without the presence of ruling elders. And it may be said with all proper respect that the circumstances attending the progress of this question through the assembly furnished ground for surprise and regret. It seems to have been taken up by the Committee of Bills and Overtures without any order from the House, to have been laid before that committee by a single individual, and to have occupied in its entire consideration only a part of one session of the assembly. It does not appear that there was difficulty in the church upon the subject or any call for sudden action in regard to it. The committee which reported it consisted of two ruling elders and six ministers. And of these six ministers, three were from one synod, and only three were pastors. And in the assembly itself, which struck this deadly blow at the office of ruling elder, there were above 40 more ministers than elders. And this excessive disproportion was aggravated by the fact that an unusual number of the leading ministers of the body were persons not engaged in the regular work of the ministry of the word. Of the 83 persons who voted for the minute which passed the assembly, 63 were ministers. Of the 35 who voted against it, 18 were ministers, demonstrating that unhappy and dangerous prepossession which seems to characterize the feelings and opinions of our ministers upon every question touching the position and rights of the ruling elders, and to threaten the church with the terrible calamity of the permanent subjugation of these last named officers, and, as much inevitably follow, the overthrow of the freedom of the church itself." Now, moderator, what is pretended? What is alleged to justify such a decision under such circumstances? Let any man read the formal justification of the assembly, and if he is able, pronounce it satisfactory. What? Sir, are idle professions of respect and adequate compensation for a fatal decision impeaching the fundamental truths that our church government is won by assemblies, of which ruling elders are a constituent part, and this jure divino? Is it true, sir, in point of fact, that according to our Constitution, congregations are not required to send delegates to presbytery? Is it true that, quote, a presbytery has no authority whatever to compel the attendance of elders, end quote? If these are the real sentiments of the church, the idea of our possessing any government at all, in the proper sense of that word, is utterly absurd, except so far as that government is for ministers and in the hands of ministers." which can result in nothing but an irresponsible clerical domination. If these are not the sentiments of the church, let us vindicate at once the sacred principles which we profess to have received from God himself, in which, being divinely called, we bear offices for whose proper exercise we must account both to posterity and to Christ. But it is argued the Constitution itself bears out the decision of the assembly and provides that a quorum of a presbytery may be formed without the presence of ruling elders, The assembly decided, quote, that any three ministers of a presbytery being regularly convened are a quorum competent to the transaction of all business, end quote. The constitution of the church, on the other hand, declares that, quote, any three ministers and as many elders as may be present belonging to the presbytery being met at the time and place appointed shall be a quorum competent to proceed to business, end quote. The thing to be proved is that these two propositions contain one and the same thing, a thing which never can be proved while words retain their proper signification, and the great principles of our church polity remain unchanged. And until it is proved, the decision of the assembly is erroneous and destructive, and it is our manifest duty to labor for its reversal. What is required to be disproved is the agreement of these two propositions, and of consequence the erroneousness of the one pronounced by the assembly— This I now proceed to do. What, sir, is a quorum? Gentlemen talk and write as if it were a fifth court of the church, or rather, a sort of sub-court to every church assembly. If ruling elders are essential to the composition of a presbytery, and a quorum of presbytery, then by the terms of the proposition, ruling elders are essential to the formation of this quorum. If a quorum of a presbytery is not a presbytery, actually constituted and competent to proceed to business, then to assert that it can do all the business of a presbytery is utterly absurd and self-contradictory. Or else, it is the erection of a new court which can do all the business of a presbytery without being a presbytery, which is contrary to common sense, to the Constitution, and to the Scriptures. And yet, sir, it is upon quibbles and evasions like this that men having character in the church are content to rest the defense of acts and principles subversive of order of God's house. 
It ought to be, and I suppose is, well known to members of this court that many law processes take their names from the first or other prominent words in them. Thus we say habeas corpus, uh, capius ad, uh, status faciendum, fieri facias, uh, vendicioni exponas, venire facias, etc., etc., designated by these terms, writs in common use and well understood. Such is the origin of our use of the word quorum. The king by his writ appoints certain persons to particular duties or offices of which persons quorum he specifies in his warrant certain individuals or a certain number as competent to act or required to be present. The rule of common sense and universal practice in the absence of any such specified provision in regard to deliberative bodies at least necessarily is lex majoris partis, the law of the greater number less than the majority not being capable of determining the question, even where all are present. Thus taken, the two provisions determining the composition and the quorum of a presbytery put together read as follows. Quote, A presbytery consists of all the ministers and one ruling elder from each congregation within a particular district, of whom, quorum, any three ministers and as many ruling elders as may be present shall be competent to proceed to business. And the question is, are any elders at all required to be present? I answer yes, because every instrument of writing is to be so construed as to be consistent with itself. This instrument declares ruling elders to be a component part of all church assemblies, and therefore it cannot here mean to say this assembly is not composed in part of them, for in that case a quorum of presbytery could be no church assembly at all. Every law must receive such a construction if such can be fairly given to it as will make it consistent with fundamental constitutions which the makers of the law recognized as paramount authority, and which they are not presumed to violate unless they plainly do so. But the makers of this provision of our church constitution admit the paramount obligation of the word of God, and admit that by it elders are a component part of all church courts. Therefore, as they do not here expressly say they are not, they must not be presumed to mean that they are not. For if they do, they must mean that a quorum is a mere nullity, which is absurd. In construing every instrument, the parts that are doubtful must be explained by the parts that are clear. But it is absolutely plain that by this instrument, elders are a component part of all church courts. Therefore, this doubtful sentence cannot mean that they are not a component part of this particular church court. And if a quorum of presbytery is not a presbytery, and so a church court, there is nothing to argue about. The words about the presence of elders must have some meaning given to them, if there be any meaning they will bear. To say they mean that elders may be members if present is idle, for that is already provided for in the second section. To say they mean it is not material whether they be present or not is absurd, as is already proved, for other parts of the instrument settle that, jure divino, they are a component part of the body. There is nothing else they can mean except that some must be present, but how many is immaterial. This, therefore, is obliged to be the sense of the words, and this is indeed their obvious sense. The copulative and plainly shows that others besides the three ministers were designed to be present. If three ministers make a quorum, that is clearly expressed in the definition of the General Assembly. But the Constitution adds another clause about elders and couples it conjunctively. Therefore, it must mean more than the Assembly means, and elders must be those meant. Or if not, who are the others meant in the clause? This is the more clear when it is considered that the presbytery being composed of two classes of persons, different in many important respects, something more than a mere indirection must be necessary to exclude one entire class. And, above all, where the class thus to be excluded is the very one from which the particular court and the entire denomination derive their name, the very one which is by eminence invested with the right to exercise government and discipline in all church assemblies. It is said, may be present, never can be made to mean must be present, and therefore there must be implied a condition and a discretion. I answer, many can never be made to mean none. And as for the condition, it applies to the number present, not to the fact of presence. And as for the implied discretion, I deny it. For it is the duty of the session to send the elder. It is his duty to go. And it is the duty of the presbytery to receive him when he arrives. Suppose the same phraseology were used as to the ministers necessary in making a quorum as is used in regard to elders. Thus, quote, a presbytery consists of all the ministers and one ruling elder from each congregation within a particular district, of whom quorum, as many ministers and as many elders as may be present, shall be competent to proceed to business, end quote. 
In this case, would any human being doubt that both ministers and elders must be present? If not, then it is manifest that the present phraseology requires some elders to be present. It is the settled doctrine of our church and of all other Reformed churches that the right to convene in church assemblies, both stated and pro renata, is divine, inherent, and altogether independent of the civil power. By our Constitution, a meeting of presbytery pro renata cannot be convened unless two elders, and they have different congregations, sign their requisition for it along with two ministers. And these four persons with the presiding officer being convened upon their own call may do the business thus specified, but no other. Now, will it be pretended that the power to meet and act pro renata has a different origin or nature from that to meet statedly? If not, then it follows that in this provision we have a clear and explicit statement of what our Constitution intends by a quorum of presbytery. I consider all arguments drawn from the possible inconvenience that might result in extreme cases from the establishment of the construction here contended for as being entirely fallacious besides the question and unworthy of the subject. And all such as are based on alleged danger from the possible inattention, perverseness, or revolutionary spirit of ruling elders, leading them to defeat or break up meetings of presbytery, as being insulting to ruling elders and disreputable to those who employ them. If it be urged that as the presbytery is one body in which two classes of members are amalgamated, and vote and act jointly and not by classes, and therefore the presence of any members of the class is not indispensable, I reply, this argument is inconsistent both with the general principles of the Constitution and the express words of the clause under consideration. For if it were true, it would prove that a sufficient number of either class might make a quorum, but the words expressly preclude this sense. I answer further that upon this argument it follows inevitably that ruling elders thus amalgamated must have the right to impose hands in ordination with other members, which is denied by those who use this argument, and who thereby show their want of confidence in their own theories." If it be said that, inasmuch as in extreme cases a session may be constituted without the presence of a minister, it follows that in extreme cases a presbytery may be constituted without elders. I answer that as the first is by express law, the second must be also, and there is no such law. Further, that the existence of clear law for the former and the total want of it for the latter is conclusive against it. And further still, that the argument contradicts itself, since it argues from the plenary powers of elders to their total want of all power, from their paramount importance in a parochial presbytery to their utter insignificance in a classical presbytery, from their ability to act without ministers in one assembly to the ability of ministers to act without them in another assembly, all of which is absurd. It is upon such grounds as these, sir, that I am led to conclude that this clause about a quorum affords no pretext whatever for constituting a presbytery, under our Constitution, out of three ordinary ministers of the word without the presence of ruling elders. How far the exercise of such a power might be justified in a forming or unsettled church state, or how far it could be successfully maintained in relation to evangelists who are admitted by all the Reformed churches to be temporary and extraordinary officers, nay, how far ruling elders alone would be justified in very extraordinary cases in transcending the boundaries which we have established between parochial and classical assemblies, all these are questions in regard to which there is no necessity for me to express at this time any other opinion than this, that such powers are to be established in a manner very different from inconsistent and strained constructions of an incidental clause in a church constitution. And sir, I earnestly beseech you to consider how easy it would be to subvert the principle that our church is governed by assemblies after subverting that which establishes the composition of those assemblies. Surely it would be a task of no small difficulty to find some plea upon which the potential authority of the assemblies themselves might be irregularly exercised after succeeding upon one so miserable as the best of those we have yet been favored with, and establishing the monstrous proposition that ecclesiastical jurisdiction is complete in three ministers without charge, without the concurrence of the body of Christ's people, or the presence of their immediate representatives divinely called to the exercise of this very function." Or can it be that it is the want of any adequate impression that the Church of Christ has really a divinely ordained polity which makes it so difficult to prevent her own ministers from transgressing some of her plainest principles, her own courts from laying violent hands upon some of her most precious defenses, at the same moment they are devolving on secular corporations some of her most sacred obligations? I desire to speak with tenderness and respect, but unless I greatly deceive myself, the issue of these questions involves interests which we cannot handle with too much sobriety. It has appeared to me, moderator, 
that there is a fundamental error pervading most of the reasoning which I have heard and read against the rights of ruling elders, which has great influence in fostering the opinions against which I am now contending. It seems to be supposed that ministers of the word are more essentially and permanently members of our church courts than ruling elders are. Indeed, that they are, somehow, more immediately and sacredly officers of the Church of Christ. Such notions are altogether wrong. These offices are both alike ordained of God. The persons who fill them are equally supposed to be called and qualified from above. The gift of ruling is as real and as distinct a gift as that of teaching. And though the teaching elder is entitled to double honor, if he both rules and also labors in word and doctrine, the ruling elder is also, by the same divine word, entitled to double honor if he rules well. And by the same law, the teaching elder who does not labor in word and doctrine is entitled for all his ruling to no honor at all, for he has forsaken the most important part of his calling. And the ruling elder who rules ill is bereft also of the blessing, because he has neglected his only calling. Elders they are alike. Presbyters and no more are they both, to deny which is to deny the express letter of the word of God. See 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Also, the true nature of a gospel church by the great John Owen, especially chapters 3, 4, 7, 8, in the 20th volume of his works. Also, Dr. Samuel Miller's essay on the ruling elder, especially chapters 2 through 7. Also, the first article in the spirit of the 19th century for December 1843, which there can be no impropriety in saying is from the pen of Professor Thornwell of the College of South Carolina, found in the works of Thornwell, volume 4, pages 115 to 131. Rulers are they both, because they are presbyters. And though one class has a superadded and more honorable function of teaching as their main work, let them not think that for this reason they are any more rulers than other presbyters. And especially let them not think that they may neglect their work of teaching as too many do, and strive to make up the omission by engrossing as their main work that which is the only work of the ruling elders. And let not this latter class fail of the reward of ruling well by allowing their office to be despised, their crowns to be taken from them, their double honor to be rendered nugatory. The work of teaching and the work of ruling require gifts entirely distinct from each other. They are works not only separable, but actually separated in our church, in which our ruling elders have no pretense of a right to be public teachers. And it is as rulers and not as teachers that the officers of the church are invested with its government. It is not because our ministers of the word are invested with the right to preach and administer ordinances that they are invested with the power of rule, but it is because they are ordained church rulers as well as church teachers that they hold and may exercise jurisdiction. Preacher and ruler are the furthest possible from being synonymous as the scriptures everywhere teach. Seeing then that our ministers of the word exercise spiritual jurisdiction simply and exclusively because they are elders themselves, upon what grounds soever the notion may have arisen that they are in any way or to any degree more competent to rule than other elders, it is utterly untenable. And seeing it has been proved already that all church rule is in the hands of assemblies, it follows that preachers, as such, can have no relation to such assemblies that can give them any power to rule, but must derive that power from the fact that they are elders, presbyters, the very fact upon which ruling elders rest theirs. No man has a right to rule as minister at large, even though he be both teaching and ruling elder, as all admit." but he must be pastor of such or such a church to give him any power in it, and he must belong to such or such an assembly to give him any power there. His membership and not his right to preach being the immediate ground of his power and his office as elder, not as minister of the word, being the final ground of it. These distinctions are impregnably established by the very nature and distribution of church power. It is held with a universal consent amongst us that the power of the church in all its courts is merely a ministerial and declarative power, a power to declare the sense of God's word and to execute it. Moreover, that it is a power strictly and exclusively moral, to be exercised only over the souls, the minds, the consciences of men, a power therefore not absolute in us, but in God only, and to be exercised by us simply as a spiritual trust and upon the authority of Christ." and by no means as an inherent power. And again, that its whole force is spent upon those only who are voluntarily the followers of Christ, and through their own act fellow citizens with the saints. The light of nature and the word of God alike teach us that such powers can never be exercised except by officers bearing a double relation to God and to the household of faith. It is by the authority of God, but it is also by the consent of God's people that every spiritual officer is to be appointed and every act of authority exerted. 
Every kind of power that can be exercised is either a joint or a several power. Ecclesiastical power that is several is defined to be potestas ordinis, the power of order. That which is joint potestas jurisdictionis, the power of rule. To the former class belong all such powers as any church officer may exercise personally, singly, by right of his order, ex officio, as that a minister of the word may preach, administer sacraments, etc., or that an elder may counsel, rebuke, etc. To the latter class belong all powers that can be exercised only in assemblies of the church, all which are joint and corporate powers without exception. It follows inevitably that to suppose a possession of certain rights which are several, that is, rights of order, gives a peculiar, inherent, permanent, and sacred right to the exercise of powers which are joint, that is, powers of jurisdiction, is absurd. And that the notion that one sort of several power, to wit preaching, gives this right more sacredly or really than another kind, for example, rebuking, is also absurd. But that all the possessors of the joint power have an equal and the very same right to its joint exercise, and of course to membership in the assemblies where alone it can be exerted. And it cannot be too often noted that the several exercise of joint powers is prelacy, not Presbyterianism. For as Henderson has well said in the remark already cited from him, if ordination and jurisdiction, both of which are according to our system and to divine truth joint powers, depend on bishops, all other limitations can do the church no good. And what is it but a tincture of prelacy for ministers of the word to claim, if not indeed an exclusive several right to the exercise of all joint power, at least a superior, more permanent, and more sacred right founded upon the peculiar nature of their several powers, to exercise even to the exclusion of elders, powers which are purely joint? Let it be further observed, sir, that it is a total illusion to suppose, as many seem to do, that any church courts are presbyteries, for example— are radically composed of ministers of the word. Presbyteries are properly composed of parishes, congregations, particular churches, not of ministers of the word. The grand reason assigned for the necessity of presbyteries is that the church being divided into many separate congregations, these need mutual counsel and assistance, and therefore the importance and usefulness of the body in which they may act by their ministers and elders. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed into the hands of those who are officers of churches, and all synods and councils in a settled church state are assemblies which it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches to appoint. The General Assembly of the Kirk of Scotland, in acts passed during the noblest era of that illustrious church, has settled this point in the same manner, over and over. In an act passed December 20th, 1638, they say, in terms, presbyteries are composed of sundry parochians or parishes. In an act passed June 3rd, 1644, quote, for the present entry of the new erected presbytery at Bigar, end quote, and which seems to be in common form, 12 particular churches are named and erected into a presbytery, and then all the ministers and ruling elders of the said named churches are empowered to meet in presbytery and exercise the power and jurisdiction belonging to such a body. And in the important act approving the Westminster Confession of Faith, passed on the 27th of August, 1647, the assembly expressing its sense of chapter 31, section 2 of that confession as it passed to the Synod of Westminster, expressly says that it is only in churches, not settled or constituted in point of government, that the civil magistrate may call synods which are even properly composed, or that the ministers of Christ without delegation from their churches may of themselves and by virtue of their office meet together synodically, and that neither of these ought to be done in Kirk's constituted and settled, for, proceeds the act, the magistrate may always consult in a settled church the assemblies of ministers and ruling elders meeting upon delegation from their churches, and these assemblies are always free to meet as well pro reinata as at ordinary times upon deputation from the churches." by the intrinsical power received from Christ. I therefore take it, sir, to be indisputable, that according to our Constitution and according to the general principles of the case as understood by the purest Reformed Church in her purest day, ministers not only do not compose presbyteries or other church courts by virtue of their office as ministers, but in a settled church state they are not, in strict right, entitled even to appear in them as constituent members, except as they are ministers of the particular churches which make up the presbytery. Whatever force may be derived from a contrary practice in our church, allowing ministers as such to sit in presbytery, is spent upon the mere fact of the practice. And that far in the past and existing condition of the church might appeal to the sound discretion of the church, 
But even in this case, every act and record of our church tolerating such a practice proceeds on the assumption that such ministers are at least engaged in the cure of souls as their main work. Footnote, the reader will observe that there are here four associated but distinct questions. First, the formation of presbyteries. Second, the meetings of them without elders. Third, the sitting of ministers in them who are not pastors or evangelists. Fourth, the sitting of such ministers who have forsaken their calling. As it is law, not practice, that I am discussing, and this question of practice is both uncertain and extensive, I leave it just now upon the general statements of the speech, which contain the conclusions I have arrived at. The main points here argued will be found to be borne out by the great mass of the acts of the assembly and of all our synods constituting presbyteries, which are essentially geographical, making the presbyteries consist of certain churches and their ministers, or certain ministers in their churches, or a certain district of a country, or certain ministers in a certain district, but very rarely of ministers only, and then against the settled law of the church. The principle of elective affinity was thoroughly a new school principle and was utterly repudiated by the church. The point of the argument is that presbyteries are not composed of ministers alone, nor of ministers as such, and a careful examination will show this truth to be deeply embedded in the acts as well as in the constitution of the church. My view of a loose practice is that the law ought to correct it, not it subvert the law. End note. But now, when a claim is set up as of right and is enforced by a fatal act of the assembly, which not only places every minister simply as a minister, and in total disregard of his having forsaken his covenant calling and full possession of the amplest powers belonging to a church ruler, when it is alleged, as of divine right, that men of this description are more inherently church rulers than those whose sole duty it is to rule, and that they may rule independently of them, and if need be to the exclusion of all participation of authority by them, it is high time to recur to first principles and to set the whole subject upon its true and scriptural basis. Thus considered, nothing is more clear than that the rule of the whole church is lawfully and righteously in the hands of the rulers of the particular churches, and to assert the contrary is to contend for a government which is irresponsible, incompetent, without warrant, and without delegation, a kind of government equally repugnant to the light of nature and the word of God. I will now, sir, advance a step further and show that the act of the last assembly is contrary to the clear and well-settled construction of the law of the case, that it is directly contradictory of the established construction of our own and of the Scottish constitutions upon this important subject. The whole matter is res adjudicata, and the decision of our last assembly is as completely aside from the whole current of decisions as I have shown it to be of fundamental principles." According to the settled law of the Scottish Church, every church court in which ruling elders do not sit is legal, and all its acts are null. Stuart of Partivan declares that neither the constitution of the church nor the law of the land in Scotland do authorize any other ecclesiastical judicatory but assemblies, synods, presbyteries, and kirk sessions, or their committees, consisting of ministers and ruling elders. That no ecclesiastical judicatory or committee thereof can be lawful without consisting of both ministers and elders— and he expresses a doubt whether the state would recognize or correspond with any bodies not thus composed. The Assembly of 1638, the most memorable except that of 1843, that ever met in Scotland, annulled as utterly illegal no less than six preceding and, as they called them, pretended assemblies, to wit, those of 1606, 1608, 1616, 1617, and 1618. Amongst the reasons assigned for this immense stretch of authority, in five out of six cases, one reason is that there were no ruling elders in those assemblies, in some none being lawfully commissioned, in others none being lawfully sent. The assembly of the following year, in an elaborate statement entitled Causes and Remedy of the Bygone Evils of This Kirk Addressed to the King, assigns as the fifth cause of past troubles the six foresighted assemblies, which they pronounced to have been corrupt, null, and unlawful amongst other chief reasons, because they were called and constituted quite contrary to the order, constitution, and uninterrupted practice of the church ever since the Reformation, by all which ruling elders did rightly constitute a part of lawful general assemblies. The laws laid down by part of it extends even to commissions and committees of the church courts, which differ from each other in this, that the former may examine and conclude, while the latter can only examine and report." And I have discovered a very curious fact, strongly illustrative of the subject now before us, in which the commission of the Scottish Assembly of 1643, in appointing a special commission of itself, had its attention directed to the very principles for which I now contend, and fully recognized them in one of the most interesting acts, and in its issues one of the most important ever performed by a church court. It was on the occasion of appointing the Scotch commissioners to the Westminster Assembly. Bailey, who was one of them, 
tells us that he moved in the meeting of the commission of the assembly that some elders should be placed on the commission about to be sent to Westminster. But he adds, I got not a man to second me. Yet the absurdity and danger of such an omission pressing my mind, I drew up reasons for my judgment, which I communicated to Argyle and Warriston. And when they had like the motion, I went so about it that at the next meeting it was carried without opposition. These reasons, more fortunate and effectual than reasons usually are, have come down to us and are worthy to be pondered. The one which is immediately pertinent to my present argument is in these words. The excluding of ruling elders from a commission of this nature may call in question the validity of the commission, may hazard the approbation of it by the next general assembly, may give just offense to all ruling elders, may make all the actions of these ministers more unpleasant and of less authority with the body of any nation. The result was the recognition of the principle that ruling elders must regularly be members of all assemblies whose constituent parts are preaching and ruling elders, and even of all commissions and sub-commissions of them, whether general or special. And three ruling elders, the Earl of Casalis, Lord John Maitland, and Johnston of Wariston, were united with the ministers, Henderson, Douglas, Rutherford, Bailey, and Gillespie, as commissioners on the part of the Kirk of Scotland to the Westminster Assembly. All this is the more remarkable when we compare the phraseology of the Scottish standards with that of our own, and the construction adopted by our late assembly. In the printed acts of the Scotch assemblies, I have before me repeated acts of the successive assemblies from 1638 to 1649, appointing their standing commission for the public affairs of this kirk. These acts name first a large number of ministers, then a large number of ruling elders, who are directed to meet on a certain day at a place fixed, and afterwards, as they shall think good, and then gives and grants unto them, or any fifteen of them, there being twelve ministers present, full power and commission, etc. Here is a case far stronger for the exclusion of elders, who are not even named as a part of the quorum, than can be produced out of our standards. And yet, of such cases as this, part of it asserts that unless elders are present, the commission is illegal. And Bailey informs us that in this identical commission of which he was a member, so many ministers and three elders made up a quorum. In regard to the quorum of presbytery, the case is even more striking. For to perform any classical act of government or ordination, there shall be present at least a major part of the ministers of the whole classes, says Pardovan. And yet, says the same authority, this very presbytery is illegal unless ruling elders be also present. That is... By the Scottish standards, in the quorum of a presbytery, there must be at least a major part of all the ministers of the body, nothing being said in this relation of elders, but seeing it is a fundamental principle of the whole system that elders enter into the composition of every court, they are upon that principle held to be indispensable here, and so adjudged to be. But our standards fully recognize and assert the same general principle, and moreover particularly name elders in the special clause about a quorum as members presumed to be present. And yet our assembly concludes that they need not be present at all. The state church of monarchical Scotland, which rules less manifestly clear for the rights of the special representatives of the Christian people, declared steadfastly and clearly for those rights ages ago, while the Free Church of Republican America, with every general principle and every special enactment of its constitution strongly and manifestly for those high and important rights, decides even at a time like this, earnestly, yea, indignantly against them. Nay, a storm is raised against the presumption of vindicating what are stigmatized as brownest, radical, and revolutionary doctrines, and even many of the elders themselves are amongst the very foremost in destroying their own sacred liberties. Surely these things are calculated to arrest the public attention and to create a profound anxiety in the minds of all who know how difficult it is to preserve the purity of free institutions and to maintain the special liberties of mankind." This extraordinary decision of our General Assembly and the violent efforts made to uphold it as just and wise are the more surprising when it is remembered that it is contrary to former decisions of our church. From the earliest period of this church in America, the collections of Pardovan have been its rule of discipline, and the general principles therein embodied is essentially our own. And that work was made the basis of a portion of our present standards when they were compiled. Although, therefore, it may have been true in the forming and unsettled state of the church, and especially amid the difficulties created by a bloody and protracted national struggle for freedom, in which our whole church embarked with the country as one man, that occasional departures from strict rule were unavoidable, yet these irregularities could do little harm so long as the law remained unaltered and clear against them, and the sentiment of the church was right. 
as the places I have cited clearly prove it was up to the period when our present standards were compiled 55 years ago. Upon the law of those standards as written, I have already spoken fully. That law as expounded presents little or nothing to countenance and a massive proof against the interpretation of the last assembly. Even the early and monstrous violation of the Constitution by the formation of the Plan of Union of 1801 so far respected reason and truth that no pretension was made that the contemplated arrangements were either regular, constitutional, or permanent. That plan, as it relates to the present question, virtually abolished the office of ruling elder. And if there is one point upon which this church has pronounced an irreversible judgment, it is that that plan was utterly null and void from the hour of its inception up to the declaration of that nullity 36 years afterwards by the Assembly of 1837. It is true the controversy which resulted in this decision involved other questions, questions of doctrine and questions of practice, as well as questions of church order. And I am ready to admit that in all my efforts, and no man made more, to reform the church at that period, the question of order was never considered by me the paramount question. But the fact is recorded palpably and beyond denial upon all the proceedings of that period, civil and ecclesiastical, that the controversy was settled mainly on the point of church order. There were great irregularities, and there were great heresies, no doubt, to be removed. But these could not make the plan of union unconstitutional. They could only make it improper. But the Assembly of 1837 annulled that plan as unconstitutional and then declared the four synods out of our connection for that reason that they were illegally constituted and illegally continued by and under that void plan. In what respect, sir? Why, sir, the churches, the presbyteries, and the synods were declared not to be Presbyterian mainly upon the very point this day involved. They had no ruling elders and therefore were not Presbyterian. And whoever will carefully study the acts of the Assembly of 1837, its answers to protests, its official letters, the whole current of its proceedings, will find the stress of the whole question laid upon church order and the hinge of the whole case in the question debated before you this day. Upon this ground, more than upon any other, it was triumphantly carried through that great assembly, through the church at large, and through the civil tribunals of the country. Sir, I was an actor in all those scenes. I have personal knowledge of what I assert. The records of the church and of the country bear me out in what I say. And I now tell you, I tell the church, I tell posterity, that if the decision of the Assembly of 1843 is law, the decisions of the Assembly of 1837 are not law. If it is law that ministers without charge make a presbytery, a synod, or an assembly, for the decision covers all this, then it was illegal. It was monstrous to separate four entire synods from the church upon the pretense that even ministers with charge cannot, without the presence of ruling elders, constitute church courts which can constitutionally belong to this church. They might deserve upon other grounds to be separated from us, but it could not be true that for this defect they never were with us or of us if this defect is no defect. It is vain to say that disowned synods had no elders appointed in any of their churches. The fact is otherwise. There were elders, more or less, in many churches. And as it regards the presbyteries and synods, the fact of presence, not the fact of existence, is the sole fact of the case. For my part, sir, I stand by the reform of 1837, by its principles and by its acts. I pronounce the decision of 1843 a counter-revolution, and I unhesitatingly denounce it as at once compromising the character of the church, subverting the fundamental principles of its polity, prostrating the rights of the elders, and endangering the spiritual freedom of the people. Footnote. It would be perfectly easy to show by citations from nearly every important paper of the Assembly of 1837 and from the elaborate report of the trial at law growing out of the Acts of Assembly of 1837-38 to that both the church and the civil tribunals allowed this great controversy to go off mainly on the point of church order and that the question of church order turned essentially upon the illegality of the plan of union and that illegality upon its provisions allowing elders to be superseded entirely or supplanted by committeemen. The length to which this would protract this argument and the general acquaintance which must exist in regards to matters so recent and so important induce me to omit the detailed proof. It is also worthy of serious reflection, and is a strong collateral support to my general principles, that the German and the Dutch Reformed churches in this country, both in principle and practice, adopt the view contended for by me in this speech. In the former church, it is extremely common for an elder to preside in consistory, the pastor being present. And it is well known that the classes and synods erected in England under the advice of the Westminster Assembly consisted of twice as many elders as ministers, and that no act was valid except a certain number of the former class approved it, 
a point not embraced in the advice of the assembly, but submitted to by those holding jure divino principles. End footnote. Moderator, if I am capable of feeling the force of truth, I have now proved these propositions, that in our church the government is in the hands not of a priesthood, nor of the brotherhood, but of assemblies, that these assemblies are composed regularly of ministers of the word and ruling elders, and these two fundamental principles are revealed to us from God. That a quorum of presbytery, which is nothing more nor less than a presbytery constituted for business, is to be composed according to the two preceding rules, and that the fair construction of our constitution can lead us to nothing else. That it is so far from being true that ministers of the word are more sacredly rulers of the church and the organic members of our church courts by virtue of their office as teachers than ruling elders. That the fact is precisely the reverse. And that the ministers are members of any of those courts simply because they are elders themselves, and therefore rulers. That this whole view of this subject is fully established by the acts and decisions both of the Church of Scotland, after which we have copied most, and by those of our own church from its origin, and especially in recent and memorable transactions. I think, sir, I have also proved that according to the well-settled principles of the whole subject and its widest extent, and according to the clear judgment of the ablest men and the purest churches which have handled these great questions— any serious departure from the positions I have established leads by inevitable necessity to prelacy or independency. And, sir, I could easily show, if it were required, that in all past time, whatever clear thinker or learned man or gathered church has held other opinions and stopped short of prelacy or independency, has seriously doubted or wholly denied the use divinum of the office of ruling elder." It is apparent, then, that some of the most important considerations which can ever be presented upon the subject of church order must be carefully weighed before we can render a safe, an intelligent, or a just decision in the matter before us. And if gentlemen can find any pleasure in scoffs at old books, the very outsides of which they confess they never saw until now, and that patient and minute search into the past which they are pleased to consider as its fruits are laid at their feet, a useless display of learning irrelevant to the questions we are to decide, I am so far from presuming to rob them of any part of that gratification that I can only lament my utter inability to take up knowledge by absorption, to decide intuitively what God has revealed or ought to reveal, to divest myself of all reverence for the judgment of great and good men who have devoted vast powers of thought and investigation to subjects I desire to understand." or to bear as a light and easy thing the responsibility laid upon me by my calling and my vows to seek for, to cherish, and to maintain truth. It does appear to me, sir, that principles of the deepest importance are involved in this subject, and that practical consequences of the gravest character would be likely to follow the final confirmation by the Church of the hasty and ill-considered decision of the Assembly of 1843, the most terrible calamity which can befall any government is to separate it either in feeling or in reality from those who are subject to its authority. As the most obvious proof that any community is already subjugated is that the government is paramount to the state itself. Shall we bring upon ourselves both these disasters? All spiritual authority from its very nature ought to, and with us happily is, submitted to only as the voluntary act of those who obey it. The government of the Church of God was made for the Church— not the church for it, its officers given to the spouse of the Lamb, not placed as lords over her. The church courts are not the church, but preachers and elders are alike and are only a ministry, a body of servants given by the ascending Savior to the body of his redeemed. Shall the ministers of the word become a close corporation, self-perpetuated, and in effect irresponsible, connected with the church only by an undefined dominion over it, not being, if we dare credit the last assembly, even members of it? Or shall they continue to be helpers of the joy instead of lords over the consciences of God's people, their great and paramount function being to teach the world the religion of Jesus, and their less important office to join with those whose special duty it is to rule in the gentle and divided authority which the representatives of Christ's people, in Christ's name, exercise over them. Are the ruling elders of our churches to continue the honored and chosen guides of the particular flocks, the authorized and immediate representatives of the people in the assemblies of the church, an integral and necessary portion of every assembly to which jurisdiction appertains? Or are they to occupy a position altogether equivocal, accidental, provisional, humiliating, and become an appendage to the ministers, yea, an appendage adding nothing when they are present that did not exist when they were absent, and taking nothing when they depart that is essential to be retained. 
are our congregations to look for direction to presbyteries composed of teaching and ruling elders selected by themselves, participating in all their feelings, efforts, and wants, and distinctly acquainted with their whole estate? Or are they to be ruled by three ministers without charge, who it may be, have forsaken their covenanted calling, and who presume to exercise the powers of government over ministers, elders, and people, with none of whom they hold more than a purely nominal relation? Sir, it cannot be denied that these two church states are immeasurably distinct from each other. One is a hierarchy, the other is a Christian commonwealth. For my part, there is but one course which I can adopt. It does not satisfy my conscience to be told that the Constitution which is to work this destructive change was adopted by a great majority of the assembly, that it is approved by the leading men and institutions of the church, that learned civilians pronounce it correct, that foreign ministers have been consulted and have acceded to it. It does not deter me to be threatened with the pains of an incendiary and the penalties of a church disturber. It does not remove from my path one ray of light, nor shake in my heart one firm resolve to have predicted defeat and threatened ignominy set before me in the most distinct and appalling forms. I have borne much in the service of this church. I am willing to endure more. I have stood for the truth when fewer stood by me than I can count today. Make this cause as desperate as you please, as degraded as you can. Make the danger to me and to the church as imminent as the most confident of those against me can desire or the most timid of those with me can dread, and still I will take the risk and meet the peril. When the army of the king of Babylon beleaguered Jerusalem, the very prophet who, in the face of death itself and with the brand of a traitor upon him for his fidelity, denounced the doom of the wicked city, paid down in the very courts of his prison the price of the field that was in Anathoth and subscribed the evidence, and called the witnesses, and with all precision and formality redeemed the spot, it may be, on which the victorious army of the Chaldeans was encamped. For he knew that houses and fields and vineyards would be possessed again in the land of Israel. Sir, I will take courage from this sublime example. Let this synod say the church is not a free commonwealth established of God, but is a hierarchy, which my soul abhors, and I will meekly, I trust, but yet resolutely deny that the synod utters God's truth. Let the great institutions which rule the church and the great men who conspire with them assert with one accord that we are a hierarchy and not a free commonwealth. And I will still lift up my humble voice against their loud and unanimous cry. Let the general assembly of the church, if such be the will of God, angry at us for our sins, a judge for a hierarchy against a commonwealth. And while I must respect even the errors of that venerable court, I will set my poor name against its adjudication and let posterity decide betwixt us. Let the ruling elders themselves, overborne by the clamor or seduced by the caresses of the ministers, prove insensible to their calling and negligent of the sacred trust reposed in them by God and God's blood-bought people. And even this fearful apostasy shall not shake my immovable purpose to defend the spiritual freedom of the church while there remains one inch of ground on which I can plant myself." For surely I trust in God that this sudden, amazing, and widespread stupor which has seized the officers of the church and blinded them to the true character of our institutions, and under whose baleful influence a line of conduct and a course of observation so remarkable have been adopted in this synod and elsewhere, cannot be perpetuated, and that sooner or later the church must return to her ancient landmarks, the distinguishing and vital principles of her polity. It is therefore, sir with a profound conviction of its truth and a deep sense of its timeliness, that I submit to the synod the following minute, praying God, if such be his will, to grant it favor in your sight. Whereas it is the explicit doctrine of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America that the kingdom of Jesus Christ erected in this world is his church, that the said church in its earliest and purest form was and in accordance with Holy Scripture should be governed by congregational, presbyterial, and synodical assemblies, that all these assemblies are regularly and scripturally composed only of the regular and scriptural officers appointed of Christ to bear rule in his church, to wit in the ordinary and settled state of the church, of preaching and ruling presbyters, commonly called ruling elders, that every church court or assembly, congregational, presbyterial, or synodical, consists of both sorts of the aforesaid officers, and whereas the General Assembly of 1843 has decided that any three ministers of a presbytery being regularly convened are a quorum competent to the transaction of all business, 
Although not only the conclusive force of divine ordination of a presbytery, composed not of one but of two classes of presbyters, is directly against this decision, but the explicit doctrine of the church is that the quorum of a presbytery is not any three ministers, but any three ministers and as many elders as may be present, etc. Now, this synod, believing the principle here involved to be practically the question between an aristocratical hierarchy and a free Christian commonwealth, and judging the word of God and the constitution of the church to be against the former and for the latter, we do therefore, according to the power inherent in this synod, and so declared to be in our form of government, propose to the General Assembly by way of overture, the repeal of Overture Number 20, adopted on the 30th of May, 1843, by yeas and nays, 83-35, in the last assembly as being in its doctrine contrary to Scripture and to the standards of the Church, and in its effects subversive of the office of ruling elder, and of the rights and liberties of the Christian people, and the adoption in its stead of a declarative overture to the effect that, by the constitution of the Church, no assembly of the Church, whether it be congregational, classical, or synodical, can be regularly, legally, or completely constituted without the presence of ruling elders as members thereof. Thank you for listening to this historic address delivered by Reverend R.J. Breckenridge before the Synod of Philadelphia of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America in October 1843. Sadly, Breckenridge's argument failed to persuade the Synod on this point. However, in published form, it has had an immense influence on the historic polity of the Southern Presbyterian Church and of its successor, the Presbyterian Church in America. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.